Amen. Well, let's open up together now to the book of Romans, chapter 8. It has been a great privilege these last months to be studying this glorious book and the, the truths that it holds. And, you know, there's, there's, there's been a lot of times over the course of these months where we have heard the bad news. Paul starts this letter with the bad news of the gospel in such striking terms, showing us the depravity of man, our tendency to sin, our helplessness in our sin. And as we come to uh, this eighth chapter of Romans, the glories here are so, uh, are so wonderful uh, in light of the dark backdrop of, of the bad news of our sin and condemnation. The glorious diamond of the gospel shines so brightly. And so let's read together now from Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this gift that you have given your people, that we might come to know our God through your living word, that we might hear the voice of our God, that we might, by the power of your Spirit's working, not just be called from death to life, but be able to hear the voice of our God, be, be convicted of our sin, be convicted of your righteousness and of your righteous call on our lives. And I pray that your word would accomplish all of your good purposes in us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. This eighth chapter of Romans is considered by many to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that, that all the rest of the parts of Scripture are not inspired quite as much as Romans chapter 8 is. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that uh, Romans chapter 8 is somehow more inspired, more breathed out by God than the rest of Scripture. That's not true. We believe that every word of Scripture is perfect and pure and breathed out by God, but as one pastor, Derek Thomas, puts it, if you knew you had 10 minutes left to live, would you rather have Romans 8 read to you or the genealogy in 1 Chronicles 1? Well, I think the answer for, I'm going to just go on a limb and say all of us, would be Romans 1. Now, the genealogy in 1 Chronicles 1 is inspired. It is breathed out by God. It is every bit as much inspired as the red words, if you have a red letter edition of Scripture, the words of Christ. The, the, that genealogy there is every bit as much as inspired as they are. It is every bit as much inspired as anything in the book of Romans that we have read or, or, or will read. But I don't think anybody would choose that particular section of Scripture to be read to them, to meditate on in their last moments in this life, we would want to hear something like Romans 8. That's why Romans 8 is so beloved. That's why people consider this perhaps the greatest 
chapter in the Bible. It is a chapter of victory, the victory of Jesus, the victory that Jesus Christ has won, the victory of Christ that has been applied to us, and how it affects us today in this very moment, and the promises that it gives us for all of eternity. It's a chapter that allows us to behold the grandeur and mystery of the gospel. It should evoke certain feelings within us. That's why people love it so much. It should evoke in us humility. It should evoke in us praise and worship. It reveals to us the unshakable assurance of eternal life for all who have been justified by faith. There are three major truths in these four verses that we're going to be considering this morning that I want to focus on. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are, number one, no longer under condemnation. Secondly, we are set free in Jesus. It's not just that our condemnation has been removed from us. We have actually been set free. Third, then, we are empowered. We're, we're in fact, created, purposed by God that we may be holy. So before we dive into this text, let's just remind ourselves of what has brought us to this place in Romans, where we get this glorious declaration in verse 1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul has made it clear in the text of Romans that sin is the great disease that has infected all of humanity. Sin is intrinsic to us. It is the, the very essence of the human character is rebellion against God. Mankind has neither the ability nor the desire to conform to the moral character and commands of God. Therefore, Paul has told us that all men stand condemned under God's holy law with no help, no hope of saving ourselves, no hope of getting out from underneath that condemnation on our own. And so in light of that, Paul has told us that our only hope of salvation is to cast ourselves on the mercy of God. There's nothing within us that could save us. There's nothing we could do but to throw ourselves on God's mercy and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to be saved. When this occurs, this salvation occurs by the grace of God, the sinner is then justified. The guilty, condemned person is justified, which is just a legal term that Paul uses, means declared righteous. Not just like we, not, not, not just that it's not being held against us, but like we've never done it. All the positive righteousness of Christ accounted to us. It's, it's so much more than just being forgiven. It, it is taking the perfect, spotless, eternal righteousness of the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, and having that credited to us as our own, Christ's own righteous status given to us as ours, and then, most amazing, rewarded accordingly. What an astounding thing the gospel is. What, what astounding truths and promises it holds out to us. And, but then Paul tells us, he doesn't just stop with that gospel proclamation and sign his name at the end of the letter. There's much more to be said. He, he goes on and tells us how we've died to sin, that we must no longer live in it, that, that grace is this grace of God that saves us not through any doing of our own is not an excuse for us to live in sin and to continue in sin. And then he remind us that even though that's true, even though that we've been broken free from our, 
are having been cemented into Adam and into this sin and corruption, even though Christ has broken us free and placed us in himself, even though we've been brought from death to life, in chapter 7 he tells us that this propensity to sin is still ever present in us. It doesn't go away. We still have this tendency, this desire for sin. Paul describes it as a rotting corpse wrapped to us inescapable. Compared to the standard of the spotless righteousness of Christ, Paul has said we are utterly wretched. Wretched men and women when compared with the, the spotless perfection, the holiness of God. And then we come to chapter 8. After having been brought low, only to be raised up with the glories of the riches of salvation in Christ and then to be reminded and put back in our place of who we are. We come now to chapter 8 and Paul gives us hope. Just when we might despair that this battle with sin will never end for us in this life. In the midst of our struggle with sin, we can have assurance that God will complete the good work he has begun in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God will bring it to completion our battle with sin will not be an eternal battle with sin. It's only in this life. And so let's look at what Paul says. First, we're no longer under condemnation. Verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you might be sitting here with a little bit of panic and saying, two weeks ago, he preached an entire sermon on this one verse. Are we really going to rehash all of that? Listen, it was a great sermon. We should rehash it. I'm not going to actually rehash all of what I said, but I do want to remind us. I wanted to start back at verse 1 to remind us of what's being said because it's so tied into these other truths. Paul begins here with the word, therefore. In other words, in light of everything I've just told you, all that I have said, these many pages, but especially in light of what he has just said about the grace of God in Christ and how because we're justified by faith, we have died to sin and the law. In light of all this, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, to remind you what I said a couple of weeks ago, this word no, it's not the typical word no. Paul makes an, an intentional choice to use a very emphatic word, a very emphatic word. There's, there's none whatsoever. There's no hint. It, it, it denotes a complete and total cessation. There, there, there's no condemnation, absolutely none. Those who are in Christ have been forever removed from the realm of condemnation. To put it another way, what Paul's trying to tell us here is it is utterly impossible for a believer to ever again be subject to the condemnation of God because we're in Christ. There is none there left for us if we're in Christ. Friends, that's, by the way, great news. Justification is the very opposite of condemnation. We were under condemnation, and now we have been moved into the realm of justification. Condemnation is the penalty for violating God's law. That penalty is spiritual death, eternal death. He told us in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the believer has been set free from that condemnation. Christ himself has paid the penalty for our sin. He is the propitiation for our sins, meaning he satisfied the wrath, the divine, righteous, good, right, holy wrath of God in our place for us. The wrath of God is a scary thing. Paul has shown us how scary it is in the early chapters, but even 
in God's providence as we've been reading through the Psalms to begin our worship services this morning, uh, the, these last many months, we, we came to Psalm 58 this morning, an imprecatory psalm, a psalm where the psalmist is actually praying for God's justice, for God's holy wrath to be poured out. Did, did you catch the statements that were made? As Mel read them, it, it even feels a little, I, I was sitting there thinking, do I need to get up and be like, now this is, we're just reading through the Psalms, we're not particularly mad this morning. Break their teeth, rip their fangs out, let them be like a stillborn baby. These are shocking words because the wrath of God is hot and fierce against sin and against rebellion. This is what the condemnation of God looks like. Oh, it's no light thing. It's no light thing, but it's righteous, it's just, it's good, it's right. But this wrath has been removed from us. There's none left for us. There's absolutely none left for us. God never feels about me the way he feels about those whom that psalm is addressing for even one millisecond. Isn't that great? It's glorious. He takes our sin, Christ does, and he gives to us in exchange his spotless righteousness. So the only way God ever feels about me every millisecond of my life from my conversion forward is the same joy, acceptance, and enthusiasm that he feels for his son. Not only have we been freed forever from that penalty of sin, we've also been freed from its tyrannical power. It's, it's not just that in, in, in our humanness we, we don't still sin, we do, but sin no longer enslaves us, sin no longer dominates us to the point that we can only sin, that we are powerless to do anything about it. We've been redeemed out of that slavery. We have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God who, who actually sanctifies us. It just means to transform us into the likeness of Christ. So William Hendrickson in his commentary says, no condemnation implies both pardon and purification. It's all wrapped up in that Statement. In other words, we can't ju separate justification on the one hand, being declared righteous by God, from sanctification, being made righteous by God, being transformed in the likeness of Christ. They go hand in hand. You don't get one of those things without the other. Now, there's some very bad teaching out there that says you can. We call it non-lordship salvation, among other terms. This concept of a carnal Christian, I just heard it put forward again uh, yes, a, a day or two ago on a video I was watching where the person was expounding how you can be a carnal Christian. Jesus is, is your Savior. You're for sure going to heaven, but he's not yet your Lord. You're not walking in any kind of obedience. You're holding on to rebellion and sin that you have no intention of laying down. It's not that you're wrestling with sin and you hate it. No, you're holding on to it. Friends, that's a false teaching, and it is a destructive and damnable one. It sends people to hell. If we think we can walk in open rebellion to God intentionally and not lay those things down, Scripture tells us that kind of thinking is a lie. John Calvin said, as Christ cannot be divided, so also these two blessings, that is justification and sanctification, 
that we receive together in him are inseparable. These are inseparable things. The one will automatically lead to the other. So as believers, we can rejoice in knowing that there is no condemnation. We've been freed from both the penalty of sin and sin's enslaving power. Second, we have been set free in Jesus. Continuing on, verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life, it, uh, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This, this word for means that this is the explanation of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then this word for means, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why that's true. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Because the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the, the word law here, as Paul's using it, it it's not referring to the, the Mosaic law. It's not referring to the Ten Commandments. It's not a reference to the moral law of God, what's right versus what's wrong. Law here means regulating principle. That, that which animates, that which gives power to something. So the law of gravity is that if I drop this Bible 10 times out of 10, what's going to happen when I let go? It's going to thunk down onto this desk. And the only reason it's not going to go all the way to the floor is because there's something preventing it from going. That's the law of gravity. It's the animating principle of gravity, the regulating principle. So he's talking here about the principle of the spirit of life over and against the principle of sin and death. We needed to be freed from the power of sin and death, that, that which held us in bondage. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, no one does good, not even one. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the law of sin and death that Paul's talking about here. It's the animating, dominating power of sin and death, and we had zero ability to help ourselves in that condition. There was nothing we could do. No more than this book could keep itself from falling if I let go of it. This book is dead, powerless to do anything about it. So it was with us under the power of sin and death. Verse 3, for, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We, we can't get ourselves out of this state of sin and death. Even God's holy law is of no help to us because any attempts that we might make to do good end up being fruitless when we're in this state under the total domination of sin and death. Our, our sinful flesh, Paul says, weakens the law's effectiveness to get us out of that, st out of that state. But he says, and this is so glorious, what we couldn't do and what the law couldn't do, God has done. So there's no condemnation for us. Why? Because of what God has done. That's why there's no condemnation. Verse 3 again, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, imagine this. Imagine, again, the state of our rebellion as Paul has revealed it to us in the, in the pages of Romans. 
the depths of our wickedness, our hatred of God. Paul, Paul reveals that we hated God, God hated us, we were his enemies. And so what does he do in light of that? Where his righteousness demands justice for our sin and treason and rebellion, what does God do? Well, the one who has every right to condemn us steps in. Steps in by grace. God has done what the law could not do by sending his son. God initiated with us. Us, sinners. Us, rebels. Us, unworthy. He came to us. He sent his son to us as our substitute. And note the precise language Paul uses here to describe this. He doesn't say Jesus came in sinful flesh. What would it mean if Jesus came in sinful flesh just like us? It would mean Jesus was sinful if he came in sinful flesh. If Jesus was sinful, he couldn't even atone for his own sins, let alone ours. He couldn't be the spotless sacrifice if he had sinned. He couldn't give us his spotless righteousness if he didn't have spotless Righteousness. No, Paul says Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came like us in every way but sin. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this is what God does. God God sees us in our state, totally bound in sin and death and loving it. And he sends his son to free us from sin and death. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, thoroughly conquered sin. Sin is defeated. Sin's reign is over in our lives. That's what Paul means when he says he conquered sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ on the cross, through his sinless life and his substitutionary death on the cross, made sin forfeit its dominion and power. He made sin bow its knee. And then he applies his victory to all believers, to all of his people. So it's the initiative of our triune God. This is all rooted. The fact that there is no condemnation for us in Christ now is all rooted in the initiative of our triune God, the Father's plan, the Son's work, and our union with Him. It's through that that the Spirit of God sets us free. All all members of the triune Godhead working in concert for the salvation of God's people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's why we see that refrain in Scripture time and time again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is His doing. Lastly, then, we're purposed for holiness. Look at verse 4. He did all of this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's an important statement that Paul is making here for us. We, we, we need to, to catch what he is saying. There is still a righteous requirement of God's law. Christians are not free to just live however we want, do whatever we want. We need to fulfill, Paul says. We need to live accordingly, according to God's moral law. Paul says, 
in order that, that, that phrase, in order that, it's, it's one word in Greek, hina. It denotes purpose. In fact, if, if you ever take a Greek class, one of the things they will emphasize are what they call a hina clause. A hina clause denotes purpose. There, there, there's purpose here behind what's being said, but not just purpose. It doesn't just stop there. It is a purpose that will surely be accomplished. There is purpose in God's saving work, a purpose that will surely be accomplished. Now, often we think the purpose of God's saving work, if we were to just go start asking random people in random churches what the purpose of God's saving work is, I, I would say maybe one of, the number one answer we would get is it's his love. His love is the, is the purpose behind his saving work. But really, God's love is not his purpose. It is a powerful motivation in what he has done, certainly, but it's not the purpose. God's saving his people is for a reason, but what is that reason? And the reason I can tell you that is because of this hint clause. Paul tells us what the reason is. Verse 4 tells us, it was in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Paul has revealed our wickedness. He has revealed the glory of God's salvation. He has revealed that we've been set free from condemnation, set free from the power of sin. And then he says, God did all of that so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The purpose of God's salvation is holiness. The purpose of our having been freed from the power of sin and death by the Spirit of God is holiness. That's why we can't separate justification from sanctification. It's the very purpose for which God has broken us free from our bondage in sin. The Bible never separates these two things. Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Titus 2, verse 14 Paul says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ has done what he has done on our behalf so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. These two words, righteous requirement, again, it's it's one word in Greek, It's a word that describes a command that brings about an action, specifically an action that is right, an action that is just, that is good. The command results, Paul says here, in justice and righteousness. In in other words, God's purpose for you, Christian, is for his law to be fulfilled in your life and in your actions. You ever think of yourself that way and your life that way? God's purpose for me is that his righteous law would be fulfilled in my life and my actions. That sounds intimidating to me is what that sounds like. Sounds a little scary. It might even sound wrong to you. There are a couple of pretty common errors that surround this. There's, there's, as with all things, a ditch on both sides of the road that we need to avoid Maybe you think along one of these kind of terms. The first error is exemplified for us by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not trying to show the righteousness of God's holy law. They're the law people. 
They're the ones who, who said, here's the law of God right here, and we're going to build laws all the way surrounding it so we never even get close to it. But they weren't motivated by the glory of God. They weren't motivated by a desire to show forth the righteousness of God's law. They thought they could use the law to get what they wanted. That's why they did the things that they did. Ultimately, what did this culminate in for the Pharisees as we read in the Gospels? This is how we know they weren't motivated by the glory of God and a desire to, to amplify the righteousness of his law. It culminates in them using the righteous law of God and their own man-made laws that they built to surround it in order to entrap Jesus. For what purpose? To murder him. That, by the way, is unrighteous, just in case we're not following the, the logic here. The law became a tool that they used in their hatred of Jesus. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Such a striking story. The Pharisees bring her to Jesus. They say, Jesus, what do we do with this woman that we caught in, in adultery? Well, they know. They're thinking about what the law of God says. What do we do with an adulteress? We throw rocks on her until she dies. So they come to Jesus and say, what do we do, do with her? Well, were they just so concerned to uphold the holiness of God's law? God's glory has been defamed by this sin. We must do this. The law tells it. No, they were trying to trap Jesus. That's what they were doing. How, how do we know they were trying to trap Jesus? Well, for one thing, who's missing from this story? The man is missing from this story. They just bring the woman. They, they don't bother to bring him because they're not really concerned about the law. They want to bring her because they think Jesus will advocate for not killing her when they bring her to him. Then they can accuse him of lawlessness. So it was a setup. It was a setup so that they could entrap Jesus. They're not motivated by God's glory in his holy law. They are not showing holiness at all in their hatred of Jesus. They're using the law as a weapon with the intention of destroying him. Now, admittedly, the Pharisees are an extreme example. I, I trust that you here this morning aren't thinking along those same lines as the Pharisees. But people try to use the law to get what they want from God all the time. It's incredibly common. One of the most popular Forms of Christianity in our country that we have now exported all around the world and are destroying other nations with is what we would call the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the word of faith gospel, whatever name you want to attach to it. It just says this, obey God, particularly in the area of giving us lots of your money, and you'll be healthy, you will be prosperous, Things will go well for you. Now, we may not fall into that wicked false teaching, and it is a wicked false teaching. But how tempted are we to think, do what's right, don't do what's wrong, and God will like me more. God will love me more. God will accept me more. Again, we're not motivated by the glory of God. We're not motivated by the holiness of God. We are motivated by what we can get if we work the system just right. But many go to the other extreme, this ditch on the other side of the road. One of the great theological maxims of our day, perhaps the greatest theological 
statement of our culture is this. Follow your heart. Not follow your Bible. (laughs) Follow your heart. If it feels right, it must be right. Just follow your heart. Oh, this is driving our culture, is it not? I mean, look at the insanity of the repeated attempts to pass laws where children can mutilate their bodies and their parents don't get any say in it because they feel, little Johnny feels like he should be little Jenny. It's insanity. But it's because this is the, the umbrella that we live under. Follow your heart. If it feels right to you, that is what's right. And this is driving much of popular Christianity today as well. It's not just in the world around us where we look and we can see clearly everyone's gone insane. No, it's, it's in the church. It's in Christianity, which is just echoing what the godless culture says. We are, we are so steeped in this teaching that we just bring it with us everywhere we go. Kids, books, kids, entertainment, TV, movies, it's being taught in schools. Follow your heart. Whatever feels right to you is right, and nobody, nobody gets to say anything to you about that. Kids, when you hear that, you could just scream right in that moment, whatever the setting is. If it's in school, if it's in front of a TV, if you're reading a book and you read it, scream, lies. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Go ahead. You have my permission. If you get in trouble at school, tell your parents, the preacher said I could do this. Call him and yell at him. Whatever needs to happen. Oh, it's a lie. But they're be- they are being bombarded with that message. Adults, same thing. Everywhere we turn. Anything we consume, books and entertainment and movies and social media, advertising, everywhere we turn, it is this message, just be true to yourself. Whatever feels right to you, that, that's, your, that's your highest standard for, for determining what's right and what's wrong. Friends, the, the LGBT movement that has exploded in our culture, and maybe your, your, your brain is kind of swirling like, how did we even get to this place? How do we get to the place where a 12-year-old can say, I'm a girl, not a boy, even though they were born fully male, and nobody laughs? And nobody says, we need to counsel this child. Nobody, no, 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 we're not even allowed to do that. We just have to go with it. How do we get to that place? It's by this. Whatever you feel, just be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Do whatever you think is going to make you happy. Live for your own pleasure. Don't listen to anyone who disagrees with you. They are a hater. Cut them out of your life. That is the constant message that is bombarding us. But that only leads to ruin. It only leads to destruction. It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to joy. It doesn't lead to fulfillment. And friends, this is not what God has called us to. God has not called us to follow our hearts. He absolutely has not. And if you think that we haven't bought into this, we have in all kinds of ways. That feeling you have in your gut where you just don't like something, we see this in the church regularly. 
I don't like the way we're doing something. Maybe it's different from how we've ever done it. And I elevate my feeling of being uncomfortable with it to the place of the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. It happens all the time. But it's this, it's a ditch. We have fallen off the road into the ditch where we are being led and driven by our feelings and not the word of God. I can't tell you how many times over the years someone has come to me with grave concern over something in the church and I said, let's open up our Bibles and please show me from Scripture what your concern is. And there isn't one. They just feel a certain way about it. It's pervasive. And it's because we live in this culture that bombards us with this kind of thinking. And we live in a charismatic uh, Pentecostal church environment that has saturated this, this culture that makes us think that way, but it doesn't come from Scripture, friends. It does not. It's not what God has called us to. God has called us to what? Paul tells us in black and white, to the righteous requirements of the law. God has revealed to us in his word that you do not need to follow your heart. You need to follow Jesus In his written word. That's how we follow Jesus. How do we know for sure that it's not last night's pizza? Man, I've talked to people over the years in pastoral ministry. You get a great opportunity to talk to people who are living in flagrant sin, disobeying the clear teaching of Scripture, and you talk to them and they say, God told me this was fine. And then you have to tell them, no, that was a demon. I'm sorry. You should have checked the name tag. It's in his word that he's revealed this. You need to follow what he has revealed in his written word. Jesus is reminding people that they must be made like him. They must be made like him. In other words, as he followed God's law perfectly, so he is making you, Christian, more and more and more like him, with new desires, with a new will, with a new ability to obey as you live by the power of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within you. Now again, we need to be very, very clear because I've said some hard things about living lives of rebellion against God and how that indicates that we're not saved. We need to be very clear. This is a consequence of salvation, not a cause of salvation. This is the purpose. This is the result of salvation, but it is a sure result such that we can look at our lives and if we are walking in willful rebellion against God that we have no desire to put that sin to death, we intend to keep it and to hold on to it, we should be very, very concerned about the state of our salvation. Not because our ability to do right and not do wrong is what saves us, no, It's because the sure result of justification is sanctification. Are you tracking with me? We've got to get the order right or we're teaching a false gospel. Nowhere does Paul say you have to do these things. You have to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law if you want to have salvation, if you want to be right with God. That's not what Paul is saying. He says you are already right with God. And therefore, this is what happens. This is what justification, this is how it works itself out in your life. It's a sure result. It's not the cause, it is the sure result. And notice how the righteous requirement is fulfilled. It's not just for us that it is fulfilled. It is fulfilled in us. In other words, and this is such good news, we're not left alone. We're not left on our own, expected to do this by ourselves. God doesn't save us and say, now work hard. 
Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do the right thing. No, it's fulfilled in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. That The animating principle of new life in Christ is the Holy Spirit's work. So as a result, Paul says, we walk not by the flesh but by the Spirit. We live all of our life by the Holy Spirit of God. John MacArthur says, the Holy Spirit bestows and energizes spiritual life in the person who comes to Christ. He brings spiritual life to the heart that was spiritually dead. And the Spirit of God is not against the law of God. He is the one who energizes obedience to the moral commands of God. And so, here's the glorious news. In light of these truths, it's not just that there is hope for you. No, Christian, you've got even more than that. There is every confidence for you. There is full assurance for you. That's what this statement, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's more than just, I hope it all goes well for me. That's a statement of assurance. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus has accomplished our reconciliation with God. Jesus has accomplished the total defeat of sin on our behalf. Jesus has sent his spirit in order to fulfill the righteousness of God's law in his people. And so, you may struggle with sin, Christian, and I know that you do. But God tells you to trust him. To look to him. By grace, through faith, he's at work in you. He hasn't promised that our lives would be easy. He hasn't promised that our lives would be pain-free. He hasn't promised that we won't have to battle sin every day while we live in this mortal flesh. In fact, he's made it clear that we will have to, that this life will be difficult and troublesome and that we will have to battle flesh every day that we walk this earth. But he has promised to never leave you and never forsake you. He has promised that he will finish the good work that he has begun in you. So, friend, walk with Jesus. Walk in the Holy Spirit. Draw near to God. He is all you need. Do you believe that this morning? He is all you need. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, for the encouragement of your gospel that reminds us of, yes, our inability to save ourselves, but of the power of your salvation. Lord, that we are not dependent on our own righteousness, our ability to get it right, but it is all the work of your spirit within us and that you are sure to finish the good work you have begun. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen your people, encourage your people. Lord, where we battle with sin, would you, by the power of your spirit, cause us to walk in increasing victory, that we would live righteous lives, that your holy law would be fulfilled in us. Lord, cause us to walk with boldness in these dark days, in this world that celebrates darkness, rebellion, and sin. Those who who not only sin, but give approval to those who likewise sin. I pray, God, that you would put steel in our spine, make us faithful proclaim your gospel, to be ambassadors for your gospel. I pray, Lord, that, that you would unite our hearts, even as we are united in Christ with one another, that we would have true unity. 
with one another for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. And I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us. And I thank you, Lord, that we can rest on your promise that you'll do so. God, we glory in your name. We glory in your great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.